You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Uh, On today's show, we're really excited to bring you, uh, I guess you would say it's an introductory discussion about a group of waterfowl that are responsible for one of the most iconic spectacles in the bird world and quite frankly one of the most iconic spectacles in nature and those would be the snow geese and Ross geese of North America Uh, during migration in winter on their staging wintering grounds they will amass in flocks that easily number in the tens of thousands and oftentimes the hundreds of thousands and it really is just a, 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 a sight to behold we have a very special and distinguished guest on the show today to help us with this conversation I'm really excited to bring in Dr. Ray Alisoskis, a research scientist from the Environment and Climate Change Canada. Ray studies Arctic ecosystems waterfowl and waterfowl conservation and management. Ray is with the Prairie and Northern Wildlife Research Center in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Ray is also an adjunct professor in the Department of Biology at the University of Saskatchewan advised numerous graduate students and contributed a wealth of information to our current understanding of the ecology and conservation of light geese across North America. And it's, it really is an honor to have you on the show, Ray. Thanks for your time and, and welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here, Mike. Yeah, so we want to uh, we want to start this off by giving you an opportunity to tell us and tell our, our listeners a little, a little bit about what you do, your, your, your personal uh, story, if you're interested in sharing sharing some of those some of those background uh, pieces and also your professional career uh, where you are now and where you've where you've been over your career so tell us a little bit about you ray okay well i grew up in montreal and uh, as a little kid i mean i didn't i didn't come from a hunting family although uh, my parents uh, you know they were quite outdoorsy and uh, you know enjoyed gathering berries and and uh, mushrooms and all kinds of wild stuff like that um fished but didn't hunt, but I remember as a little kid going to school, I lived by the St. Lawrence River, and uh, you could hear the duck hunters, you know, blasting away uh, in the fall, and uh, I thought that was kind of cool. I, 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 you know, I always enjoyed marshes and the water birds, and uh, I did, and just we'd eat duck often. So eventually, I met uh, my future advisor, Dave Ankney, and uh, uh, we started hunting together. And, uh, you know, you probably heard of Dave, and he's had quite oh, yeah. an influence on the waterfowl world. And, and in fact, he's kind of uh, relevant to this whole snow goose discussion because I think he kind of uh, caused a paradigm shift in how these birds were viewed in terms of their um, effects on, you know, perceived effects on Arctic ecosystems and so on. But, uh, but anyway, yeah, he had an influence on me, and then I did a master's uh, with Dave Ankney at Western Ontario, University of Western Ontario, 
And uh, I sought Dave out because, of course, he'd done his own PhD with uh, snow geese on McConnell River there in the uh, in the west side of Hudson Bay back in the 70s. And I just thought that was a really cool paper and everything was so quantifiable, how nutrition was so important to these birds and, and how they reproduce and how they you know, can reproduce from year to year depending on how fat and muscular they end up you know, showing up on their nesting grounds after migration. So that's something that eventually led to my PhD work was the spring nutrition of uh, snow geese. Um, again, with Dave, I did a master's with Dave studying coots, and that was a good training ground in how to do science through Delta waterfowl on the famous Delta Marsh. And then I stayed on with Dave for my PhD and uh, traveled up and down the central Mississippi flyway Mostly, yeah, because we'd start in the winter, and my focus was spring nutrition, as I said, and we'd, we'd quantify and try to learn and understand what was important to these birds in terms of the habitats they used, you know, their behavior, um, uh, and their diets specifically, and then how, how that influenced how they fatten up and bulk up on their way north before they start nesting, so... And then uh, I finally got a job. Uh, well, I did a postdoc uh, through Delta University of Manitoba with Dr. Bruce Bad, who's my my uh, supervisor, I guess. And then I eventually applied for a job here. At uh, at the time, I worked for Canadian Wildlife Service in 1989. I've been here ever since. Although we've been reorganized a little bit, and I'm with uh, uh, Wildlife Research Division. Although my colleagues in CWS, we still do, we work very closely together in terms of banding operations and analyses and, and that sort of thing. So so I'm still here and uh, kind of a long-winded intro, but there you have it in a nutshell, I guess. I appreciate that. Um, appreciate that, Ray. How did you, how did you first meet Dave? Was it, did, did you reach out to him uh, for your master's work or was there some, uh, some meeting prior to that? No, it was all by correspondence. At the time, I was, uh, you know, going to uh, McDonald College where they had a wildlife program, a renewable resource program, and I was finishing up, you know, and I go, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. And although I applied to Delta Waterfowl, and I, I got a, 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 oh, I forget what they're called now, I'm drawing a blank, but a, like a summer internship. Yep. And, right. uh, and so I and and I'd read this snow goose paper by Dave Ankney several actually, but there was one that was pretty influential. It was a, ended up being a citation classic eventually. And uh, so I wrote to him, and uh, you know he wrote back. And um, I was doing some blackbird work at the time in the summer, and he uh, he actually came to visit, but we we actually didn't meet because I had to go to France to play rugby for a, three or four. <laughs> I couldn't turn the opportunity down. <laughs> So anyway, he showed up and I was gone, but uh, he really cut me some slack. I ended up seeing meeting Dave finally at uh, Delta Waterfowl at the Marsh, the research station there in 1980, and uh, we hit it off. And uh, yeah, I came up with a project which I did on on the nutrition of coots and uh, and how that affected clutch size, and uh, which I did in '81 field season. And then um, you know I started my PhD again with Dave. Uh, uh, 1983, starting uh, down in Texas and Louisiana, uh, focusing on those snow geese. So a bit of a shift from the coot to the, the to the you know the spectacular snow goose, and uh, yeah, it was uh, quite a trip. Learned a lot, and still learning. Yeah, there's a joke in there somewhere. You started with blackbirds and moved to coots, and then went to snow geese, and ain't me having a role in that ladder. There's a joke in there somewhere. And yeah, so, yeah. Uh, but we'll, I, <laughs> we'll disentangle it someday. 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. But uh, just from a personal perspective, I, you know, selfishly, I, I enjoy the opportunity to do this because I'm going to learn a little bit about your personal background that I didn't know. I wasn't aware that you were a rugby player. Uh, it doesn't surprise me knowing you, uh, but, but I guess I didn't know that. Well, I'm not anymore, and uh, you know, I quit when I was 50 playing. That is, I still refereed, but uh, but the old arthritis is creeping in, so I just prefer to watch and uh, and watch the other guys do the have all the fun. I'll have to get you to teach me the rules of uh, rugby one of these days. It's something I just haven't figured out yet. We can arrange that. Yeah. So on to the discussion here. Uh, you've referenced already your your history of studying light yeast, where it where it all started, uh, and and then you uh, you you moved to Saskatoon, and what we want to eventually do here is really focus this discussion on the long term studies that have been conducted and continue to be conducted on snow goose nesting colonies across the Arctic. So help me understand a little bit when did when did those begin, and what was your role in starting some of those uh, those studies? Well, I mean, uh, you know, there's a long-term study that is still ongoing. It's in the subarctic near La Perouse Bay, I believe. Uh, you know, Fred Cook initially um, uh, got that going back in uh, 1968, I believe. It uh, was a small colony at the time, and it has grown since. And compared to the colonies farther to the north currently, it's still... Um, you know, one of the smaller ones, and it's on the southern end of the range. Uh, but that has provided a lot of uh, important, you know, genetic information and uh, and things that affect the basic biology of, of these birds during nesting and things like recruitment and, and so on, survival. A lot of good works come out of there. And currently, uh, Dr. Robert Rockwell, he's, uh, mm-hmm. he's, he's uh, in charge of that operation. Uh, but we... When I joined Canadian Wildlife Service, you know, that had a big influence in my, that showed me the importance of long-term studies, okay? And, uh, but the one thing that I wanted to do was get to the Arctic and understand, uh, you know, this, these guys had worked on snow geese. There was very little known about Ross geese in terms of their population biology. And so, you know, there had been some pioneering work done by uh, Bob McLandris and uh, Dr. John Ryder and others in the Central Arctic, where the Roskies were thought to be pretty well restricted at the time, and so I was interested in trying to understand. Uh, and we knew that there were snow geese up there in Canada Central Arctic, uh, south of a place called Queen Maud Gulf, and it's in the bird sanctuary. It's actually, I think, the largest bird sanctuary in the world, a Ramsar site. And uh, so it's very important for a wide variety of Arctic waterfowl and, and shorebirds and, and wildlife in general. But we knew the Roskies were pretty well confined to that area. And so they had started increasing. And then at the time, uh, you know, conversations with Dave uh, about how abundant birds seemed to be becoming and, and so on got me thinking, well, maybe we should get in on the ground floor if these populations are increasing. Maybe we could try to understand better why. Um, And so I started uh, going to the Arctic in 1989. You know, I preceded the work with snow geese since about 83, 84, and and during their migration and so on. But I wanted to get at what kind of made the population tick. And... uh, and so that's why I started focusing in the Arctic. And we, uh, I got up there in 89. We started banding birds uh, with colleagues there. Richard Kerbis was a, a guy who had done a bunch of work in the Arctic with Canadian Wildlife Service. And he was in my office, so I accompanied him in 
1989 to the Queen Maud Gulf Bird Sanctuary, uh, and we were banning snow and roskies and neck collaring them. So because we had this program on the go at the time that you know there wasn't the hunting was restricted to the fall and winter in the migratory bird framework. You, you couldn't hunt birds in the spring at the time. Right. So these callers allowed us to make observations of, of birds outside the hunting season. So that was the idea at the time. And then being there, I just I just saw. I visited some of the colonies, uh, and we banded around there, and I saw an opportunity at Carrick Lake, uh, where John Ryder had done work and Bob McLandris, uh, and it, you know there was a substantial number of birds there at the time. I didn't know how many, but uh, um, so in '91 we actually started doing field work there and um, and doing the nesting studies and the banding in the surrounding area. So those two things are the major activities that let you get at, you know, what's producing new goslings is these nesting studies, right? Mm -hmm. And the banding data that, you know, hunters really supply, again, you know, through citizen science, supply the information on the ban returns. And also their their, uh, submission of tails and wings and of other waterfowl to understand total harvest, um, those that information is 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 critical to to what we do on the on the banding and survival end of things, uh, and then on the uh, production end of things, we use these nesting studies. So, the two uh, you know understanding those two ends of the equation, I guess, uh, and how they contribute to uh, population growth is is kind of why. You know, we wanted to have a two-handed approach in, in, in trying to understand what makes these populations tick. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlantSport.com. There are nesting colonies. You've referenced the location of a few of those. Uh, the Queen Maud Gulf uh, Bird Sanctuary, Carrick Lake, uh, uh, Bylot Island, Baffin Island. I think we're getting over into some of the greater snow geese once we go a little bit east there. Banks Island uh, and probably a few others. How many of those nesting colonies? Then you go really far west and you get to Wrangell Island, which is just off the, the coast of Russia over there. Yeah, it's in how Russia. Ma- uh-huh. Yeah, how many, how many of these uh, nesting colonies have you been associated with from, from the standpoint of you know, the, the studies that, that are actually occurring there? Well, I actually focus my my presence and 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 direct activity to the Central Arctic. So that includes uh, the Queen Maud Gulf Bird Sanctuary, and within that is sort of like a constellation of colonies of of light geese, like over a hundred. Um, now that's changed. When when I started there, there was at least a hundred colonies, or pushing a hundred. But most of those were uh, very small, uh, you know, on islands and lakes. And they were largely Roskies. And the reason the Roskies would like these lakes is because they were shallow lakes and they would thaw out before all the other water bodies because they were shallow, right? And then if you nested on these islands surrounded by water, you had a bit of a, you know, you deterred foxes from coming, you know, swimming through that water and, and, and getting your eggs. So that's why Roskies were there. But then snow geese had moved into the region over the 70s and 80s and started building 
probably from the west coast of Hudson Bay uh, to the southeast uh, of where of the Queen Maud Gulf region. And uh, these snogies started coming in and, 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 and nesting alongside a lot of these roskies, and the numbers just ballooned. And um, eventually there were probably, oh, maybe eight colonies that were huge. Uh, you know, we're talking uh, 100,000 to a million birds each. And Carrick Lake was one of these. And what happened there over time is you could just see the colony grow um, kind of like a city, <laughs> you know, in real time uh, over 20 years, you know, like a human city, just expanding like a like an ink stain, I guess. Uh, and these birds had just started occupying more and more area to nest in. And the snow geese were joining these, and, and, and the numbers became so huge, they spilled off of the islands onto the mainland. And, and you know, once birds get to 100,000, uh, they they kind of swamp the predators that are there. So there might be 20 foxes, and they they might eat you know a thousand eggs each, but they're just overwhelmed, and 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 things take off. And so that's kind of like the the, the growth of these uh, population of snow and roskies in the central Arctic, uh, fueled by about probably six to eight large colonies uh, in the cent Canadian Arctic. But as you say, there are other colonies that uh, that form the mid-continent population and the snow geese at Carrick Lake alongside uh, if people look on the map they can check these names out on Southampton Island there's over a million snow geese nesting there on Baffin the great plain of the Kujuak it's called on the Baffin Island it's like a, a great grassy plain with with ponds studded throughout it and uh, perfect you know perfect for an herbivore like a snow goose uh, during the summer you know uh, you mentioned Bylet Island. That's a bit to the north, and that's largely composed of snow geese that tend to go through Quebec and the Atlantic, you know, end up wintering in the Atlantic Flyway. Yeah, and uh, those would be the greater snow geese, right? That- that's right. Yeah, the greater snow geese. Yeah, bigger bird, um, noticeably bigger once you, you know, if you held them in your hands, they're, they're quite a bit bigger than a than a snow goose, and certainly way bigger than a than a Ross goose, the diminutive Ross goose. Are there ongoing long-term studies on Bylot Island and Baffin Island still, and who's responsible for those if there are? In terms of nesting studies, uh, yeah, Dr. Gilles Gauthier, he's with Laval University. He's been up there since the mid-'80s, I believe, um, uh, looking at not just the snow geese, but how they interact with the ecosystem, the surrounding ecosystem on on, uh, on Bylet Island, and when I say ecosystem, I mean all the, you know, the members of the plant community, the animal community, the shorebirds, um, you know, um, Arctic fox, uh, and so on. And we we do the same kinds of work, uh, although Jill's been uh, much more uh, wider, uh, much more facets to the whole question of uh, how these birds, the snow geese and, and greater snow geese, uh, interact with other species and influence the ecosystem. Um, we we do similar work in that we have long-term studies of Arctic fox in addition to the geese. We we monitor lemmings and, and the associated uh, vegetation in the region and, and how that changes over time uh, and so on. So, yeah, Gilles has been there uh, with his students uh, and colleagues uh, on Bylet for, oh, over 30 years, I think. And then over in Russia on Wrangell Island, remind me of the, uh, the researcher in charge of that operation. Well, in this... Yeah, uh, in the early days, I think in the 70s, Evgeny Shuritskovsky, um, uh was there uh, uh, studying birds and, and a few other colleagues whom I don't know. Uh, 
but now uh, there's a gentleman, uh, Vasily Baranyuk, who who is there. He basically lives there. I understand pretty well alone, but he does such detailed work in understanding where the birds are nesting and and what the production is on Wrangell Island each year. And you know, there's some changes going on there. I guess they're doing really well compared to how they'd have been, uh, uh, you know, probably 10 years ago. Age ratios seem to be high, is my understanding, and uh, I think I think if I understand the story correctly, is one of the things that happened is the wolves were introduced, Arctic wolves to the islands, and which you know take out the um, the local fox population, or certainly dampen it, and uh, and of course that reduces any predation on eggs of that the nesting birds are. Might, that the nesting snow geese might experience. Now, that's just a thumbnail sketch. Uh, I, I'm not. I've never been to Wrangell, but uh, just speaking of Vasily, uh, understand that that kind of um, situation is going on over there. Yeah, and you have other people that are involved in some of these studies. I know Jim Lefleur of the Canadian Wildlife Service uh, is involved in some of these. Dana Kellett, Keel Drake, and a few other influential people that uh, are now uh, highly visible in continuing a lot of the work that that you were actually responsible for helping get underway. And so there's a well, one of the p- things that I want to paint for our listeners here is a picture of just how much effort goes into studying snow geese and Ross geese in these very, very high latitude areas. Uh, It's easy. It's easy when you're down here at the southern end of the flyway to not truly appreciate uh, because I'm I'm guilty of this. You just kind of you see these massive concentrations of birds and you think, well, they just come from up north somewhere. And it's not until (laughs) you really stop and and think about and look at a map, as you were saying, uh, how far they travel. I was just doing some calculations before I came on here looking at the map from Banks Island down to the Texas mid-coast. You're looking at 3,200 miles uh, from Wrangell Island to the Skagit Valley in Washington. You're looking at 2,400 miles. And so these birds travel just a phenomenal distance every year. And the researchers that then go north to study these birds on their nesting grounds have to travel Similarly, very long distances, and there are no highways to get to those locations, right? Well, With the exception of maybe maybe a couple of the more southerly locations. Yeah, I think you can, you know, I mean, you can drive to some of these colonies. Uh, like La Cruz Bay is close enough to Churchill that, you, you know, uh, the logistics a little less complicated than, like, for example, where we are at Carrick Lake. We're on the mainland. We're 300 kilometers from a place called Cambridge Bay. So everything's got to be flown in, and um, unlike geese, which is just can you know decide, oh, I'm going to start flying. We have to book travel, and uh, you know we have to deal with paperwork and and so on. And uh, yeah, and you mentioned the collaboration. That's that's certainly true. No one person can do this stuff alone. Although in the old days, uh, guys like Soper, I mean, these guys used to used to go in on by dog team the year before and over winter and then uh, at a nearby community and then and then would start working the next spring and have have to have all their stuff with them and kind of live off the land so we 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 you know we, we don't have to do that although that's quite the adventure i guess uh, to be able to do that um yeah but yeah so but it's still a very primitive location time. yeah yeah exactly i mean so yeah you know you, you still have to prepare nevertheless you know uh you have to get your fuel in place uh, at each of these locations because, uh, again, you have to fly in and out. Uh, you could skidoo 300 kilometers. Sometimes if you know we have to replace 
boats, we we hired uh, some of the local folks there at Cambridge Bay to get on their uh, comatics or uh, snow sleds, and they'll ha- they'll haul out our uh, sometimes our supplies and new new equipment to Carrick Lake. So again, it's 600 kilometers in a straight line, and so you know they have to cross the ice ridges and pressures and travel over land, and so that that in itself is a big adventure adventure um so yeah and then you know of course you got to supply you know the, the number of people at a camp over the summer you have to figure out the logistics and and uh and how much food to have how much fuel you know what uh, ammunition you know everything bear bangers and and so on and you mentioned dana kellett and she she's my uh we were she's my colleague she's my technician and the, the two of us um you know do a lot of the planning and uh, implement, uh, you know, getting all the logistics in place, uh, you know, booking travel for volunteers or, uh, and so on. So, yeah, it's, you know, it takes a lot of prep, and, uh, but, you know, goes with the territory. That's right, all to study some snow geese. Man, who would have thought that you'd be, whenever you, whenever you started this, you, you mentioned the, the value that you saw early on in your career of long-term studies when you when you helped start these these studies in the uh, central arctic uh, did you i mean obviously you would want them to persist for a long period of time but looking back are you are you are you surprised that you've been able to keep things going the way they have and even expand them the way they uh, the way it's happened well, you know, it 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 uh, it, it does help to look for uh, backwards sometimes and and revisit things. And but I I don't dwell on it too much. I just I look at the data and I and I see the value of, uh, you know, having 30 years of data instead of two or three years. And then you you know you try and figure out what's going on with two, like less than a generation time for a snow goose or you know I mean you need you need to go you got to play the long game to get understanding of. When you're dealing with population dynamics, and uh, you know, I mean, you know, even the human population from one year to the next, uh, you know, it's seven billion, but it it only that number only means so much more when you put it in the historical context. So, uh, same with the the birds, you know, I mean, you, you have a the time series gives you the reference or the perspective to understand, well, what does it mean? You know, it gives you a historical perspective and context. Like if there's a million birds, is that a lot? Well, it depends what happened before. And, uh, and so, you know, every year and looking forward every year is kind of an adventure because, you know, I mean, you, you could study things forever, but, and everything's got a shelf life, but I mean, um, it's always full of surprises and, uh, you know, there's always a drive uh, to understand, well, what's the next step? I mean, what's going to happen? This can't ha- go on forever, right, with snow geese. How can they grow, uh, you know, forever? Turns out they're not. They're, they're, they've they uh, probably, and we don't need to talk about this today, but uh, they've probably leveled off and maybe are even declining now for, for a number of reasons. But So that kind of dynamic is interesting to understand, and you only get it with long-term studies. As a, uh, as a, a waterfowl hunter, as someone that appreciates the waterfowl resource, as a waterfowl scientist, I, uh, I offer my thanks to you and all the hard work that's gone into getting those colonies up and running and uh, the incredible volume of data that you've been able to assemble over the years, the difficulty with which uh, it, it is to to operate in that environment, and just the, uh, the determination that 
that you guys have used to, to make sure that happens from year to year. So I offer my thanks for that and appreciate you coming on the, uh, coming on the show and sharing some of this with us. It's no, no problem at all, Mike, and uh, it's been a pleasure. A special thanks again to our guest today, Dr. Ray Alisoskis, for taking time out of his schedule and sharing with us some important insights from the work that he's done over the years. We also thank our producer, Clay Baird, who produces the show and and, uh, keeps us all uh, sounding good. And then most importantly, we thank you, the listeners. We thank you for your time, for tuning in. We thank you for your commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. <laughs>